Brown Genius is a podcast in full color spectrum dedicated to providing a platform for underrepresented voices. This Chicano Picasso production is brought to you with generous support from the Arts Affinity Group. Thank you for listening. One, two, one. many sick, many sick. One go many drink, many drink. Diversify scope, money straight, money straight. Proper simple, human being, human being. So fresh, so clean, my mind, limousine, my quasar, so my crown, I king, my beam, so mean, my gangster lane, I bomb your scene, my people get free, root the tradition, set the condition, break the system, forward transmission. Check, check, check one, two, brown genius, in effect, we're back again. Moving forward into the future. This is Molina Speaks. And Cherie, love Mestiza Brown. And we are blessed to be in the studio today with Candy Sidabaka. She's the executive director of Project Voice here in Denver, Colorado. Es la historia, mi historia, tu historia. Es la historia, mi historia, tu historia. Para todos que luchan. Es la historia, es la historia, mi historia, tu historia. That's an old school Mo Speaks cut from like 2006. All right, Miss Candy, tell us your story. Thank you for having me. Um, I am a troublemaker. You got it all wrong. I'm a troublemaker. That's what I do. That's my profession. I am an Eastsider, born and raised in Swansea. I have been here most of my life, except for the couple of times where I left once to San Diego, once to DC, and I'm back. I was a manual high school graduate, first generation high school graduate in my family. When I went out to San Diego, it was for college, my bachelor's degree, came back to Denver, finished my master's degree um, in social work, and then I moved out to D.C. to do education policy, and I moved back to Denver in 2014, and I took over Project Voice, an organization that I actually co-founded when I was in college at the University of Denver getting my master's. So I'm here to make trouble. my hood. The the city's changing a lot and I'm trying to make sure that our communities are not lost in the change and they have an active role and the tools they need to play that active role in the change. Where do you get your culture from? You know, where do you, where do you get your style? What, what did you inherit? Well, first, before I tell you all that, um, when I say troublemaker, it's to spark questions about trouble for whom, because that's the way I think the world perceives me. But I'm a truth seeker, a truth seeker and a light bringer. And so for some people that equates to trouble for my people, it doesn't. And so that's who I'm here to serve. And I and I love highlighting that at the beginning because I own it, because if that means trouble to someone else, I step into that very proudly. Um, My. My uh, mixture is interesting because I don't think it's something I valued early on in my life. It took quite a while to value. I come from a family who's been in Denver for four generations, but came up from northern New Mexico, Las Vegas, New Mexico, on my mom's side. And on my dad's side, he's from Cuauhtémoc, Chihuahua. And so with all of the... Things that happen in the American Southwest, most Southwestern Mexicans come with a lot of baggage that's connected to racial identity and um, race politics that happened when the United States took Mexico. So growing up, I grew up in a half black, half Mexican community. And because I wasn't an immigrant or a first generation immigrant on both sides, I identified as a Chicana and I didn't know why. I just knew that's how we identified. My grandma, with her mentality that was really shaped by the Southwest and her time period, she did not like us to identify as Chicana or Mexicana. In fact, she encouraged us to identify as um, Spanish. And for a long time, I didn't understand what that meant. 
but I knew we spoke Spanish, so I would identify like that occasionally. It wasn't until, you know, I left my neighborhood and it was a neighborhood that really insulated me in a lot of ways because of the fact that it was uh, a hyper concentration of Latinos and black people. I experienced great culture shock when I went on to college because I was all of a sudden the only brown person in the room. And so I had to think about what that brownness meant to me and what that brownness meant in context of where I was. And so I questioned a lot of the things that made me who I was as a Latina and more things became important to me. I learned about the Chicano movement for the first time in a classroom in San Diego. And I was learning about the origins of the Chicano movement in Denver, specifically with leaders who had been a part of the community I grew up in and went to the high school I went to, and I had never heard of them before. And so that really forced me to dig deeper into who I was as a Chicana and what that meant as a political identity and how it was a political identity that really was designed to connect people to an indigenous identity. And for me, when I started finding that indigenous piece of myself, that's when I, f when I found candy. And it was something I couldn't describe before um, because I was around my grandparents and my great grandma often. I thought that I had an old soul because of who I was around. But as I dug deeper into my heritage and my identity as a Latina, a Chicana, that indigenous piece of me was something that told me I had been here before. And that old soul was really ancestral knowledge that I carried in my DNA that I didn't recognize as ancestral knowledge until that point. And so I think that's where my my flavor comes from, where my style and my attachment to my community and to empowering um, people who have been silenced. I really love that. I really love how um, through a series of events in our lives that will lead us to the to the point in the moments where things click and certain parts of our DNA is reactivated and reawakened. And it, it is a remembering of who we are and what we're here to do and uh, a remembering of purpose. And I'm, I would love to hear how your journey with reclaiming ancestral knowledge informs your work with Project Voice and how um, how the ancestral piece and the ancestral history and the ancestral work uh, is incorporated into the training with Project Voice as well. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, that moment I talked about earlier about learning about who I was in a classroom thousands of miles from my community was that moment that taught me what it would take to activate a, an entire population and generation. What became very clear in that moment was how the information that I was soaking in in that space was intentionally kept away from communities who needed it the most. And the absurd part of being in that space was that I also realized at the same time that space wasn't designed for me to be there. And it was almost accidental that I broke some code to get into that club to be there. And so to be in a place where you felt like you only got here by chance, by luck, it wasn't designed for you to be in that place. And then to also experience the knowledge that almost felt like a secret to put those two things together made me feel like this was the key. This was the magic bullet to take back information or to remind people of that spiritual, that ancestral in information that's inside of us 
that's not nurtured naturally by the systems we're a part of that we're that are shaping our lives. And so for Project Voice, the biggest um, piece of our work is really helping young people connect with who they are, not just as leaders, but as people in the community, as people in a long line of ancestors and workers or people who have worked for justice. And that's the one thing that I think makes us really different from other organizations, but is also the most effective part of the work we do. Because we say that we're a a mentorship organization without a mentoring program. Because the simple sharing of that knowledge that helps young people connect with who they are or who they have been in, in past lives through ancestors, that simple knowledge is what it takes to show someone they're powerful, that they're capable, and give them the, the encouragement they need to step into leadership and the world in a different way. That's really beautiful. I love, you know, uh, the, uh, the the concept of Sankofa is very um, near and dear to my heart and, and to a lot of communities of color where the, we are taking knowledge from the past, um, making it very, knowledge that is very relevant to the present uh, to build future. Yeah, that that mentor that people need isn't always someone external. And that mentor can be the ancestor in yourself. Exactly, exactly. That's one thing that I have felt a really difficult lesson that I had to learn uh, growing up, uh, being a young adult in the city, trying to find and seek and ask for elders, ask for mentors like I need a teacher. I need a teacher. Keep. I, I had this notion that, you know, someone knew the things and I just need to find who knows the things so that they could tell me the things so I could know how to do the things. And the lesson kept coming over and over and over again uh, that there is no teacher, especially for these particular times, you know, and, and how often did that have to happen uh, throughout history to where there there wasn't a teacher for uh, the circumstances of specific pockets of time, you know, who were the teachers in the civil rights era? You know, who were the teachers in, you know, these 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 other different uh, uh, time periods? Uh, and and right now, I feel like as we have had to do in the past, that we we have to to carve out a different trail. These are different times; they call for different circumstances and different ways of looking at things. We are accumulating all the knowledge into uh, new perspectives and and having to uh, utilize different tools, different ways of thinking and being uh, to accomplish things in a different way because we have seen and are understanding, you know, patterns of the past and studying all those patterns that perhaps aren't working for us anymore, you know, and, and in what ways do we need to adopt new patterns and perspectives and and even going back to adopting uh, the pattern languages of nature and the natural world instead of using straight lines, going back to curves and spirals. Ms. Brown, you are you are taking us in in all the cosmic directions. Yeah, I was I was thinking about the spiral as you were as you were speaking and you know you 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 end at the you end up at the spiral and and I think about the the spiral of, uh, you know, Miss Sidabaka's work with Project Voice. One of the things I love about your story, Candy, is uh, just the way that, you know, you founded or co-founded this organization as, as a very young woman. You know, maybe at the time you were finding your voice or maybe before you even truly found your voice, right? And And this institution is called Project Voice. And then you know, after you leave Denver and you go on these journeys and these adventures and, you know, you gain this knowledge away from home, you come back to find yourself like leading this organization again, you know, like a decade later. Uh, I just think that's, that's such a beautiful story. And 
I'm wondering what, what, what that's like for you. You know, if you could, if you could speak to our listeners about just that experience of having, having started something and left it, and then you, you come back to it, you circle back to it and you're ready to, you know, open up that loop and spiral higher and take this work to another level. You know, what, what has this meant to you and what's your vision for the future of Project Voice? It's it's the ultimate cliche, right? To like let something go and come back. And if it comes back to you, it was meant to be. It, it feels like that. You know, a lot of times it, it has come full circle in a lot of ways. And we're taking it to that next level, to the spiral. Project Voice is an organization that trains, employs, and organizes young people between the ages of 14 to 25. We organize them to address issues of economic injustice, educational injustice, health injustice, and environmental injustice. And we were born naturally out of the shutdown of that high school. And it was to address educational injustice. And coming back, having had to start that organization out of necessity and to really address a need in the community without having proper training to start an organization, to start a nonprofit. Even in, at that time, I didn't even know what the nonprofit industrial complex was. And we started this simply to stop something else from happening without a lot of clear thought on what it would grow into or what could it become. Over the 11 years that it's existed, there have been so many people involved who have shared their their ideas, their passion, their love for what it could be. And I could have never, it wouldn't be the organization it is today if it had been me the whole time. It wouldn't, I wouldn't be the person I am with the the power, the knowledge, the skills, the tools I believe I have if I hadn't left and come back. When I started this organization, I was a fellow for an organization called the National Conference of State Legislatures. And that was part of a, a school thing. And I was studying policy for the very first time in a way that I never had understood policy. I was helping create policy briefs that legislators looked at for advice when they were passing legislation or proposing legislation. And I didn't even know the process they went through to craft legislation. But I knew in that moment that the wrong people were always consulted. And I saw a gap in some of the data we were collecting there. And that gap was the voices of people in communities like my own. And so when we started Project Voice, it was a small attempt to insert those voices at this at the lowest level of local politics. And so when I left Project Voice, I went on to do national policy, education policy. After that, I went on to enforce state policy for DC public schools, state and federal policy, and then monitor compliance for those policies. When I came back to Denver, I tried to get a little bit out of the policy world and utilize policy to shape experience through action. And then I lobbied to get legislators to adopt and craft policy that was good for communities. So none of that would have happened if I had not left the first time. And now coming back with that knowledge I think that there are not a lot of gaps in my understanding about how our world is shaped in a legal way, in an unjust way. And those first initial gaps that I saw when we were starting Project Voice and I was working for NCSL, those have been reaffirmed over and over and over in every single setting that I mentioned. And it has reiterated in my mind the need for an organization like Project Voice. If I had done this myself from the beginning, I don't think I would have had the strength of mind or heart or conviction 
to carry out what is a very tough job for me. But because I've seen these gaps in every single area of policy, it's renewed my commitment to the work. And it's also showed me what work looks like in all other in all the other ways I could have experienced it as an adult. And I love what we're doing because I didn't love all of those experiences. And I don't want our young people to have to experience a lot of the things that I've experienced in those spaces. And the work that we do is really geared toward transforming that so that they don't have to and so that they're the people crafting the world that they live in. Uh, so uh, a moment ago, you had uh, referenced the nonprofit industrial complex. Can you explain to us what you mean by that? And I guess take us into your perspective on institutions. Uh, well, first of all, every institution in our society, American society, I would I would stretch it to global, is designed to protect one thing, and that's our economic system, capitalism. All of the institutions, from education to the government, our institution as a nonprofit is part of this protection of capitalism, and it has garnered a name and that's called the nonprofit industrial complex. And that really describes how people in the nonprofit industry didn't just invent this industry to do good for the world. Um, people invented this industry as a tax shelter to protect capital gains. Mm -hmm. And it's very evident when you start studying the way nonprofits work that it was an industry that wasn't designed simply for good. And it wasn't designed to transform the world we live in, but rather to protect the world we live in and specifically protect the many of the philanthropists who are touted as those who are trying to transform the world. It was, it was designed to protect capital gains for people. And... For me, as a woman of color leading this organization that is doing what some might call subversive work or trouble, as I mentioned earlier, we have challenges every single day keeping an organization like this alive because we're reliant, like everyone else in the nonprofit industrial complex, on the generosity of benefactors who don't stand to gain much from a transformed system. In fact, they're doing just fine with how it exists. They, they're doing well enough that they have these funds to throw around. But those, what people don't understand is that often that sharing or that distribution, redistribution of dollars is a mechanism for control. And people who work in the non nonprofit world will often talk about how funders make it really hard to do reporting, how metrics sometimes take you off of the work and instead have you focusing on numbers, 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 and not people, 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 or change, change, change. And that's true. That's 100% true. Most funders would rather you deliver 500 lunches to the homeless than actually change the policies that criminalize homelessness or make people homeless. And for us, we're, we're the kind of organization that does something very different than most nonprofits. We look at root causes and we say, hey, it's not enough to just deal with the symptoms. We need to figure out what caused this problem and how do we transform that? Because we don't, we want to work ourselves out of jobs. We don't want this problem to continue. And that's subversive in that it jeopardizes the current power structure. 
And so for us to be reliant on a system that very much wants things to remain the same, that is the essence of the nonprofit industrial complex. And it's hard, you know, to be part of the the class that said, I have enough time and privilege to forego a salary or um, forego this extra time with my family to do this work to save, and I say that with air quotes, save communities that, that don't often look like me. Those people shaped this work. And so it's hard to keep people in this work and also at the same time try to break cycles of poverty. And because you're subjecting people to poverty, my I, I joke that my professional my job is to be a professional beggar because that's literally what my job is. It's to be a beggar uh, of of dollars to keep an organization alive to change things, knowing that the people I'm begging don't necessarily really want to see change. And they're going to make it really hard for us to accept those dollars because we're going to have to provide um, very concrete data on return on investment that doesn't exist with real change work. It takes many, many years sometimes to make real changes. And the changes happen in humans. The work that we're trying to do, that change is happening in a human. And it's very hard to capture that data for someone who could not conceive of the value our work has on someone. That's really powerful. With respect to institutions, it's uh, it's clear that a lot of our institutions, as you say, uh, nationally and globally, you know, these institutions are oppressive instruments of society that separate people from themselves. You know, they separate people from from their familias, from their culturas, you know, from the community. They separate us from our destiny. Yet there are some institutions that are liberatory institutions. You know, I think of Youth on Record where we're recording right now. I think of Project Voice. You know, I think of uh, a restaurant like Same Cafe, you know, over on Colfax that uh, makes quality fresh food available to anybody and everybody, even if you can't, you know, quote unquote, afford it. Um, so I guess what is your, what is your hope for the future of, of institutions? And like, how do we, how do we build institutions that liberate people and connect us as opposed to divide us? Like what's the formula? So first, first I want to address what you, what you just said. What you did was name a few exceptions to the norm. And it's similar to saying, it's similar to the comparison people make when talking about racism. And they say, I'm white and I'm not racist, but racism still exists. So like there are organizations that are part of an institution that are doing very good things. And it's probably not easy for them to do those very good things. But the institutions by design are not designed to empower humans. They're actually designed to strip most of our humanity from us and keep the machine of capitalism going. And so what I hope for in the future is that people, one, understand the role of these institutions in, in protecting an economic structure so that we can begin to deconstruct and and understand that a few good inst- a few good organizations within an institution here and there is not enough for us you know it's not enough to say dps has a couple of good schools here and there the institution itself is highly problematic and people need to understand how to either conceive of a new system that takes away the power and role of these institutions or 
we need to understand how to work within the institution to create more of those organizations that are doing that. But I highly doubt that second part is worth as much energy as we've committed to it over the last few generations. You know, I think that's the approach we've taken for for decade after decade is we've been trying to change the institutions, hoping that they could work differently without understanding that they work perfectly. They work perfectly to do what they were designed to do. So my hope is that we start thinking of a new world and building a new world independent of the institutions that exist. I feel what you're saying 100%. And like, I don't know, to some extent, I think it's semantics because I think of Project Voice as an institution where maybe you don't, you know, but to me, I'm like, okay, like Cafe Cultura, Project Voice, Youth on Record, you know, some of the various organizations or institutions or, you know, community collectives that that work with and for community. Like to me, it don't matter so much what we call them. And to me, these these entities would exist, whether in capitalism, whether in socialism, whether in a mixed market economy. And these are institutions that like within the context, because it's all context, like we're stuck in capitalism right now. Like we're within the contexts of these broader systems. And so, you know, in, in some way, shape or form, we're going to we're going to mirror them. But even though we're under these more oppressive and limiting like meta structures we are finding ways to be a bit more democratic and a bit more equitable and and hopeful you know for for the gente for the people and so you know when you talk about this uh vision for the future this this hope for kind of what we can create um I want to hear a lot more about that because I feel like oftentimes we're we're in a mode of of deconstruction and there's so much to deconstruct, right? There's so much to like pull apart and try to make sense of and it's all so confusing by design. But a lot of times we're not we're not focused enough on like the the liberation aspect or on the aspect of like providing like a formula or saying what does work or, you know, being prescriptive in the sense of like what we can build now and tomorrow based on the, on the tools that we have. And I know you wanted to say something else, Ms. Brown. Yeah. Um, I, I really resonate with this idea of setting up the next structures and I'm curious as to what you think about what is necessary to create the new worlds or the new realities that you that you speak of. After after we do some of the unlearning that we have we have to do to cleanse our mind of the poison that's been fed to us about how we need to be in an individualist culture or how we need to compete in a capitalist society. I think we need to reject ego in a new way and understand that it's been done before us. There have been societies that existed before us in more harmonious ways. And for the alternative that we're going to create, knowing what those what has existed before us is important. But rejecting that ego enough to say that I'm not here to make profit off of you or anybody else. I don't exist to make profit. Mm-hmm. I exist to exist. And there's a way that we can exist in a shared economy. Mm-hmm. I think that the the new alternative for us could be this shared economy. And that's an entirely new or I wouldn't say new because it's existed in history, history we don't talk about or learn about, but it's an entirely contradictory economic system that a lot of people don't currently place value on. You know, if it doesn't profit them or if you have to actually like share things, share space, share resources, it doesn't feel like you're successful in the context of this society. And the institutions you mentioned would have to radically shift. I mean, we'd have to shift away 
from being in a space where some of us are degrading ourselves every day to make it go on, you know, to have to be in a position as a woman of color who doesn't naturally have networks that want to give money to these causes is sometimes degrading to be a professional beggar. And while we're doing good, it would be much more powerful if we were doing good in a different economic structure where nobody was worrying about their economic security as something they're trading in in order to do good work. And so giving, so unlearning, putting aside ego and learning how to love other humans. Mm. I think that's something that from birth nowadays, you're taught not to do, you know, a little kid on a playground that you pull away from brand new kids that they just met cries out, no, mommy, no, I want to stay. I love them. And what does a mother tell that child? You don't love them. You barely know them. You just met them. But that's how it actually should be. And that's a moment in time that happens often where we're teaching people not to love each other. And that grows and it grows into ugly things in this society. And we can't live like that. We can't survive like that. We'll never make another alternative that's more harmonious if that's not at the foundation of it. Absolutely. Um, You spoke on, you know, one of the very first things is the unlearning, uh, the uh, deprogramming of sorts and and reprogramming into uh, that love frequency, right? Um, In your opinion, for those of us who are just starting the unlearning process, uh, what are some of the narratives that you feel most passionate about rewriting? Which narratives, you know, which ones just need to go? Like right now, right away, urgently in order to... make these these massive shifts and uh, which ones are you currently rewriting either in yourself or in your work? For me, um, I think at some point in time, there was a narrative that shifted about man and woman and feminine and masculine. And in a lot of communities of color, especially inner city communities of color, where families were broken apart by government and justice systems, women were left to run households and women had to take on the masculine and the feminine in unfair ways. And those narratives, that narrative has, I think, harmed um a lot of our ability to start at that foundation of love. You know, I think there's a lot of hurt that's misdirected because of the way families were broken and masculine, feminine energies, balances were disrupted. And so for me personally, that's one that I'm consistently trying to change for myself. In my community, the big one that I interface with daily that I'm trying to help our community change is that we don't have power and that gangs and and violence plague our communities and destroy our communities. We continuously bring this up with young people because our young people feel the policing of their bodies in their schools, on their streets. They're also consistently told by a a teacher demographic that doesn't match them that they should do good so they can get up out of the hood and leave and do better. We're trying to flip that and say, do well so that you can take over your community because it's valuable and you're more than capable of doing that. And these gang things that people are punishing you for, how do you transform that into something beneficial for your community once again? Because if we learn the history about how gangs got started, those 
those gangs emerged from a need to protect communities and from love. You know, some of the acronyms that we have as gang names right now meant something very deep, deeply rooted in love for community, for oneself. And bringing that back or connecting the the current generation to people and efforts that were rooted in love and were poisoned by someone external on purpose. That is what we're trying to, to flip and return to a space of love. We're in a new moment. We're in a new era. How long does this era of fascism last? And uh, what is the future of social justice work? You know... I have a hard time believing that we're in this moment for the first time. I think we've been in this moment for a long time and are and we've been numb or asleep to it at to different levels or different degrees. I think that the moment we're in right now is a moment where we're more awake than we have been before. I I think that for the near future, it's it's going to be tough. I don't think it's going to get easier in the near future. I think it's actually going to get more difficult because while I would say the a large portion of our population is more awake than they've ever been before, there's still a huge part of our population that is not awake to that degree. And that will create tension. And that tension is going to have to be dealt with. And for us, we get the choice on how to deal with that tension. But we have thousands of years of history that we can look to and study of how people address this type of tension over time and decide if we want to repeat something that didn't necessarily create the outcomes people wanted or if we want to respond in a new way. I think the beauty of the time we're in right now is that there's very little secrets. Most knowledge, most information, most connections to other humans around the globe are at the are in our our the palms of our hands, they're at our fingertips. And while these tools that are all around us have been used in many ways against us, we have the opportunity to use the tools that are available to us in a meaningful, powerful, loving way to create a new world. Never before have we had this kind of access to each other or to information. What we're doing right now is using this access, this virtual access to shut us off from the world and real connection. I think that we need to rethink the way we're using the tool and use it as a supplementary connection instead of, right? Like we're we're not, it's not a replacement for human connection. It's only an addition to the many ways that we should and could be connecting to each other to address our issues on a more a broader scale in a more collaborative way because we're not the only people in this moment in time. You know, there's people all over the world who are affected by the things we do right here in this country. And now more than ever, we should be talking to other people about how we affect the world as Americans and how we can actually listen to what other people globally have to say about how they think it could be done differently because we don't live in a bubble without connection anymore. I liked what you were speaking about of how uh, there are no secrets anymore in, in our access to a lot of information. It, it resonated with me uh, as I have grown to hear stories of different indigenous peoples around the world who are easing their easing their membranes 
uh, and their lines of division between their tribes and the outside world uh, and sharing more stories, sharing more ceremonies, sharing more of their perspectives, their language, their words, their ways of being uh, with the outside world, knowing and trusting that that sacred information will go where it is needed to reactivate, you know, um, people and, and trusting that, you know, the sacred will do its work and, and trusting that. And by sharing uh, these ceremonies, hoping and trusting spirit that, that, that it will help humanity and help people beyond their tribe because it is needed no matter what, like it's, it's just needed. So it's, it's really beautiful hearing those stories and, and, and how these secrets, you know, we're returning to a lot of people are returning to secrets, quote unquote secrets of, uh, of how to manifest things, how to create things, how to create worlds, how to create new realities, like actually very literally, how do you create a new world and a new reality? Because we are living under uh, someone else's imagination. We are living under someone else's paradigm and reality that they that they worked and spoke into existence and and built it from the ground up. You know, you know, you're seeing a, a resurgence in 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 returning to a lot of these things. You know, uh, I've been noticing a resurgence of people studying alchemy uh, around me and in my community, uh, people who are very interested in this idea of transmuting, you know, uh, very dense um, materials into gold, you know, both metaphorically and within the body and all of those histories of alchemy are are laced with obscurity of people hiding the secrets and trusting that the people who understand the symbols and and the metaphor like that it trying to weed out the people with nefarious you know um intentions with the knowledge uh and it's 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 very interesting the way people have dealt with um powerful secrets of life and and how now, you know, it's it's right there in front of us constantly, but you got to find the right the right moment that resonates with you for for different pieces of your your DNA to reactivate and reawaken. Uh, and I'm curious as well, kind of jumping into a different vein of the same, you know, stream of things. This word keeps coming up over and over again in relation to the times that we are in, the paradigm that we're living under, this particular word that a lot of people are using to describe what is needed and what's necessary for the for the future of social justice work, for the future of population and people. I keep seeing this word resist, 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 resist. And I'm I recently tried to start a conversation around that word and what does it mean to resist, you know, knowing that the basic principles of, of reality is that when, when you are putting a particular word out there, you're going to get that same word back, you know. So if we are talking about resistance, we'll most likely, you know, reverberate resistance right back to us. How do you feel about the word resist in, in relation to our social justice movements? And is this what resonates with you of how to move forward in the future of the movements? Well, that word is interesting, especially since earlier, like we talked about dichotomies and living in dichotomies and dichotomies and binaries being problematic. I think that resist, resist is a word that is important because now that we are able to, we've always been able to, but now that truth is becoming more prevalent or more available to us, there's a need to balance what we accept inside of us, but also the need to resist hasn't gone away. You know, just like the body is able to physically wrap its arms around something to bring something inward. 
does it make the body stop protecting with hair on eyelashes or in your nose, protecting, resisting things from coming inside of your body? And understanding the world in a different way right now requires us to understand that nothing is completely right or completely wrong. And when you when you brought up earlier um, understanding the world in a more from a more organic or biological perspective that acknowledges natural patterns, I think we have all of the answers we need right here in front of us in the body. Not only is truth available to us through technology, but truth about our bodies and what's happening inside down to the molecular level is available to us. You look, we talked about the spiral and you look at like a, a DNA, a piece of DNA, and that is a spiral structure. You look at examples of, and, and this one's come up a lot for me recently, examples of functional communities, functional ecosystems, and they look like molecules in a visual way. Like you can see things arranged in the same way that a, the natural pattern of a molecule looks. These are things that are important for us to look to for answers. And when we say resist, I use it. I prefer create more over resist, but we've also embraced very unhealthy things for a long time. And unlearning what we've been wrongly embracing is going to require us to resist in some form or fashion that lie. And I think that we have to know that balance is really the word that we should elevate in all of this moving forward in the future, balancing the possibilities, balancing truth with resistance, um, and knowing that nobody's ever all right and nobody's ever all wrong. And on the continuum of space and time, the possibilities are so vast like we cannot to to think and associate the definitions that have been given to certain words it is problematic in itself because language was created for a reason and we've talked about this before language evokes emotions language in some in some ways evokes an idea of a course of action and shifting that is our responsibility now. Shifting those associated courses of action or the connotations of violence or creating another way to use that word is important too. Just as important as creating another way to exist is important. You said that we've been embracing uh, a lot of the wrong things or, or self destructive things. What are the maybe three? things that come to mind first that we should stop embracing, like right now. Everybody who's listening, stop embracing these things. Individualism. Um, I would say the traditional definition of success and American education. Word. The last thing we want to ask you about is the word fear. Uh, we were having dinner earlier with a, a group of young folks um, trying to help, you know, mentor them on their path to uh, really settling into their artistry and, and doing something uh, meaningful and fulfilling, you know, for the mind, body, spirit. And we got in this conversation about fear and, uh, you know, you you spoke a little bit earlier about how so many people are are asleep and and even in this time of awakening so many people remain asleep and i feel like if they're not asleep then they're stuck in fear you know what i mean they're just filled with fear and and that fear leads to depression and anxiety and stagnation and an inability to like generate the forward movement that is necessary to change things in your own life you know and in your community and and in the in the in the reality that surrounds you so I guess we're wondering, uh, what is your prescription for fear? Ooh. 
Dr. Dulce. Oh, if I had the answer to that, you know. But you do. Fear is fear is connected to that conversation about alchemy and like mental alchemy and knowing that we're powerful beings that could create our existence. That's information we don't get. Fear is instilled in us intentionally so that we never change the way things are. So that we never build up enough um, courage or desire to change things. And starting there with people, telling them and showing them how fear is instilled in us through those top three things that I told us to uh, told you to avoid or stop doing, that is how fear is instilled in us. And finding really tangible examples of things that people are fearful of and showing them um, what my favorite author uh, tells us, Paulo Coelho, and I'm going to, I'll butcher it. But what he essentially says is that the fear of something is often greater than the thing itself, like greater than the actually doing it. Showing people in very tangible ways that that is true is a good step in the right direction. Most of our fears are irrational, but some of them are completely rational. And helping people get past those first irrational fears helps build the courage to move through the ones that are rational. But in order to move through those rational ones, you need to give people the tools they need to create alternative pathways through fear. Because sometimes you're going to try a pathway to get through fear and it's not really going to work and it's not really going to reduce the amount of fear you have to try it again or do something else. But having a backup plan or another way to move through that fear gives people the confidence to move through fear as many times as they need to, to, to understand that fear is a part of the process and it's good because, I mean, you're awake, you're paying attention, you're acting, but it's not that serious. You know, once you learn how to mute fear, um, I think that you can step into your power and be the humans we were designed to be. That was a false, of, it was a construction that is not innate. I don't think it's innate. I feel that one way to uh, really move that fear, you know, with the power of the, the voice and the breath is, uh, you know, speak, speak what you're afraid of, right? Like, I'm afraid of death. You know, but then you turn that into like, I am not afraid of death. I will not fear death. I will not let death conquer me. I am not afraid of fear. Say it as many times as you need to. But then I think that the trick is to like transform it once again to I will live my life. I will live my life fully. I will have no regrets when I die. I will do everything that I need to do every day, every breath, every night until there is you know, nothing left and I'll, and I'll go to sleep and I'll wake up and I'll do it again. You know what I mean? But it's like, you're just transforming it, you know, and speaking what it is, being true about what it is that you're afraid of. And, and then that's, that's still not enough because then you have to, you have to transform it and flip it from a negatory statement into a positive statement, an affirmation that is the opposite of that fear. And connecting your experience to a natural pattern a lot of people are fearful of failure or destruction and destruction is often part of the process. And I, I like to use the example of a seed. Like experiences are, are supposed to destroy what you were so that you can be something new. Like a seed destroys its container to become what it was meant to become. It's part of the process. And just finding as many different ways to cope with it as you can is the key, in my opinion. Orale, to all the seeds out there in your pods, chilling in your casitas, driving around in your carros, flying in your spaceships, we want to thank you for tuning in for another trip around the sun, moon, and stars. This is Brown Genius. This is a shout out to all the geniuses that it, you know, it exists within you no matter who you are, what your color is, or where you come from. And so, 
We celebrate y'all for being with us. And Ms. Dulce, Ms. Candy Cidebaca, we, uh, we honor you and we celebrate you. And, you know, I know that uh, it's all very messy, you know, dealing with this nonprofit industrial complex that you speak of. But regardless of that, you know, and regardless of what the structure and system is, like you're doing very important work, you know, and, and I know that as director, you know, you say it's like a job of professional beggar, but I give y'all money every year and you don't have to beg me for it, you know? And, and one of the things I love about your organization is like, you know, you host your big annual fundraiser in the gymnasium of the school that you went to, you know, as a high school student. And like, I could bring my baby girl, you know, I could bring my chiquita and I could come in a suit or I could come in like khakis and a white t-shirt and it's all love no matter what. Or I could come in, you know, I could come pachuco style and be in a zoot suit. And that's cool too. You know, I could like, you know, it's like, it's for all the people. And it's one of the most just honest and genuine and authentic fundraisers that, you know, I go to. So uh, yeah, we, we affirm you and, uh, yes, thank you. Thank you. That's why you're our candy rain. Thank you. I love you guys. <laughs> we love you too. <laughs> Mil gracias for listening to Brown Genius. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes and spread the word. You can find us at browngeniuspodcast.com and on Instagram and Facebook. Brown Genius is hosted by Molina Speaks and Cherie Love Mestiza Brown, produced by Rodney Sino Cruz. <laughs>